Yes, welcome to the Salam Project podcast. Greetings, blessings, love, salam alaikum to everyone. I'm honoured to be hosting the third episode in the Salam Project podcast series. And we're honoured to be hosting and interviewing an educational consultant and home education advocate, an academic and the founder of the Mother's Devotion Initiative. Can I please introduce to you Dr. Rachel Sarah Lewis. Salam alaikum, sis. Alaikum salam wa Thank you for blessing me with your presence and your time because I know you're a very busy lady. Um, for those that don't know, can you, and we're living in an age where people have to say their credentials or whatever, so I don't want to get it wrong. Can I ask you just to tell everybody your credentials so to show everyone that you know what you're talking about, please? So my credentials, ooh. Okay, so I breezed through secondary school quite easily, uh, went on to do some A-levels, uh, went to Leeds University to do my bachelor's, then went on to do my master's, and went on to do a PhD in comparative religion. My qualities are that I am uber organized. I am a mum of five. I love being a mum. It's challenging. It's, well, it's just one of those jobs that never stops. It's one of those 24-hour scene jobs. I run a home education centre along with another sister um, in Leeds. And we run that on the basis that we do a couple of hours a week with children from the age of eight to the age of 16, giving them everything that they need while their parents have a coffee. Um, Because we know how hard it is to deal with our own children. So we like to go and deal with somebody Mm. else's for a couple of hours a week. Yes. And how did you get into working in education, would you say? Originally, I wanted to be a doctor. So I sort of spoke to my dad and I was like, yeah, I really want to go into the medical field. And then I did a year of med school and absolutely hated it. Mm -hmm. It wasn't necessarily that it was book learning, but rote learning does not appeal to me in any way, shape or form, because I'm Mm -hmm. not able to ask the question that the children that I used to teach in secondary school would nickname me by, and they named me Mrs. Y. Because you couldn't make a statement in my class without me asking you, why do you feel that? (laughs) Or why is that the way? Um, Because they'd come out with blanket statements like all Muslims are or all Christians are. And I'd go, why? So from that point, um, I decided, yes, I really, really wanted to go into something that would be slightly more challenging, which was teaching. I taught in a secondary school for five years and then realized that wasn't for me either uh, because there was a lot of disparity and the main disparity that I found was a lovely young man called Jamal. Jamal was black and Muslim. And I was told the moment I started, this is an NQT, newly qualified teacher, watch out for Jamal. Whoa. By the name, I knew Jamal would be big, black and Muslim. Uh-huh. When he walked into my class, you could tell Jamal had never been taught by someone who looked like him mm. uh, because he sat down on a desk with his back towards me. Which I said, Jamal, please sit down. And he went, oh, in a minute, miss, in a minute. I was like, Jamal, sit down. And he pulled out the classic line. And the classic line that a lot of our boys do pull because they are given the situation to pull is, oh, it's because I'm black. <laughs> the whole class erupted in laughter. Jamal turned around. He looked at me. I sort of went, Jamal, really? And he sat down and he never said anything anything to do with race in my class ever again 
And Jamal now is 21. When I met him, he was about 13. Even till this day, if he sees me in town, he says, that's my other mum. Because Aww. I wouldn't have gone to uni if it wasn't for her. Because she told me, don't let anyone else talk nonsense when you know the story you want to tell. He was in my class for everything. Maths, English, science, geography, history. Because whenever he got kicked out of lesson, it was either go into isolation or go and meet Mrs. Lewis. And he came to me. Uh, Okay, I'm going to cut straight to the point. Mm -hmm. What is the school to prison pipeline? Oh, loaded question. School to prison pipeline is an avenue that a lot of our black boys end up on. And I say that with firm conviction because I've watched it play out and I'm watching it play out still. It's a case where if you look at statistics, if you look at the pass rate of boys, black boys especially, in inner city areas in year four, five and six, that justifies how many prison spaces we build. You have to say that again. Say that again. Statistically, if we look, the amount of boys in year four, five and six, primary school, if they do not pass the quota of what we need in terms of reading and writing and and mathematics, they are automatically pegged to end up in prison because they won't necessarily achieve anything. It's the same system that is available in the US, and it's the same same system that applies here. And in your expert opinion, and from your work and from the information that you've read, how bad is the school-to-prison pipeline in regards to young black boys? It starts the the moment they start secondary school and get in trouble for the first time. I have a very lovely nephew of mine. Yes. Who is soon going to become another son of mine. He's coming to live with me. He's in London. Okay. And he has been in secondary school from since September. Okay. They have called his mother and father in twice. Mm-hmm. Once for him looking out of the window. Yes. Second time for daydreaming. Third time because his teacher asked him to put down his bag and he dropped it on the floor. Oh, my gosh. Right. All of that then emancipated to his mum has taught him very well. And I'd say my sister's taught him this very well to keep his composure. Mm. He's a big black boy. Keep your composure. So he does breathing techniques. He does a hell of a lot of crying. (laughs) Um, And a lot of that is just out of pure anger and frustration. I Mm. say to him, I'd rather you cry than hit someone. Yes. So the school did not get the response that they wanted straight away from him. Because we always say, think about what you're asked before you answer it. Mm. Think about what the five or six problems could be with your answer before you even give the first answer that you thought of. Yeah. So because he didn't give an answer the moment he was asked, he was classed as being insubordinate. The teacher oh. started shouting at him. Rather than thump the teacher, he cried. So they called my sister in and wanted her to sign off for her child to be referred to CAMS. He'd been in school for six weeks. Six. So my sister went to the meeting and I'm in Yorkshire, so I couldn't necessarily go because I couldn't Mm. make the the trip on such short notice. Yeah. I said, that's fine. Take me in on speakerphone. So I said to the teacher, what exactly are you basing all of this on? Well, there's been a number of incidents. Could you list them off for me? by any chance when she started to list these very very sensical stupid <laughs> no, no look of a better word because 
nonsense needs you to have sense to start with. <laughs> but she didn't have any sense. She was like, but he cries a lot. I was like, yeah, if he hit you, would you feel better? She didn't like that. And I said, if we feel that there is an emotional problem with my nephew, mm. we will pay for that privately by someone mm. who looks like him. Yes. She definitely did not like that. And so how important is that? So to interrupt this, because you know, sometimes we have, we, there's people that say, oh, I don't see color. We don't need to make it a black thing. <laughs> thing that type of mentality, parent, with all due respect to them. How important is it for them to see a practitioner working in that field, like a child psychologist and emotional behavioral um, specialist, and the person is of the same heritage? But that's the same thing as the London nod. You mm. see another black person on the tube and you nod because you acknowledge yeah. that person's existence. Yes. I know what you're going through. I'm nodding at you for the sake that you are still standing, that you are still striving, that you are mm -hmm. going to work. So that is the same sort of thing for a child to see someone, be it at the front of the classroom or be it as a child psychologist who is talking to you. Because regardless of whether they grew up in the same social economic bracket that you did, they still understand the microaggressions that you go through on a daily basis. Okay. So the coping mechanisms will be better. The differences that you're talking about where people say, I don't see color, is because they don't acknowledge who they are to start with because they have an inferiority complex. Whoa. So you believe it stems from there? Whoa. I think it stems from the fact of black hate. It does. And a lot of, you will see it with our parents' generation where something will be going on in the street and they'll go, but why was he there? Why, why, does, why would he not be there? Why doesn't he have the right to be there? Our parents were so taught that this was the motherland and this was the country that was going to embrace them, but it wasn't. It was supposed to be a short-term thing. You were supposed to come and leave. Yeah. Come rebuild and leave. You weren't supposed to come rebuild, stay, then do jobs and have children and put your children into school because the mm. system was never built to accommodate us. And saying that, that, that leads into the next question because this is with regards to the windrush scandal um, of, of our parents' generation. But did you yourself go through anything? Because there were many people yes. from our generation who did. Yes. I was born in 88. My siblings were born here in the UK, but prior to the law change by Margaret Thatcher. My parents came on passports from their own countries with a stamp to say that they were a British national and they were coming to be in a British country. Okay. So because they were British territory, they didn't necessarily need to change their passport. They didn't need to change their identity. They didn't need to change anything. Yeah. So they came and they had their children and their children were born here. And then some mistake happened and I came into fruition. Okay. <laughs> the passport issue did not become an issue until I was ready to go and do my top up for my degree. So I needed to go to Morocco. So I needed, at that point, I needed an adult passport. I sent off my documentation. I sent off all my parents' documentation to get a lovely letter back to say, you are not entitled to a British passport. <laughs> I was like, okay. What? And hold on, I have to confirm what, what this. You mean? Are you born here? Are you born in I'm, the UK? I was born in Homerton Hospital in Hackney, East, East London. London. 
East London. But the problem was my mum's island, which is you were attached to your mother, you weren't attached to your father. Okay. My mother's island had become independent, which meant that, unbeknownst to my mum, I became a St. Vincent national. So I was a ward of the state until 16, but at 16 became a St. Vincent national. So in order for me to obtain a British passport, I had to naturalise, which cost about the time probably about £1,200. I was sort of like really flabbergasted because anyone born after 80, no, I think it was 87 or 85 when the law came in, yeah. You were a national of the country in which your parents became nationals of. Gosh. But I do remember my parents, I'm a bit older than you. I do remember my parents around that time, they were doing something about their passports, about their Jamaican passports and transferring to a British passport. So it must be that. It must have been that. They made a big When Jamaica became independent, they had a couple of months to file to become automatically British and renounce their Jamaican passports. So how did this make you feel then as someone born in London and you're t- being told you're not British? Do you know, I never really identified as British because my parents were very pan-African. <laughs> so okay. <laughs> it didn't affect me the same way I saw it affect a lot of my friends that had to go through a very similar thing. So you're, you believe the reason why the Windrush scandal happened, how it happened is because the initial plan in the late 40s, early it 50s. It was never for us to stay was never for us to stay no, long term. It's supposed no. to be a short-term plan, come build up the country and go back to where you came from. Yes. You were supposed to make enough money to go back and build the West Indies off of the money that you've made. So you were necessarily working twice. I, I do remember growing up, my dad and his friends all saying, yes, we, we want to go back home to, to build up our land and so forth. But then my dad explained to me when he retired, when he eventually done it, in the 2000s, and he said to me, what happened was the baby started coming all the time because <laughs> the babies kept on coming. That yes. means it was very hard to save the money. So, Because if oh you think God. about it, you've got quite, to go on holiday, you've got quite a lot of things you've got to look for. So you've probably been aware of, we, we took a couple of children away in Leeds, a couple of black children, and okay. it was down to the point where we had to go and reapply for birth certificates, get funding to apply for passports, what? to then fundraise to get these children to go abroad because quite a lot of them only had a short copy of their birth certificate which we all know you need a long one to get a passport yeah then run around to find a counter signatory for their parents someone who's known their parents and was of upstanding position in the community to be able to sign these forms doctor teacher to then go ahead to get your passport made but then to go on to fundraise to pay for the flights so if you if there's someone for example who's listening who knows someone who knows someone i.e a parent a family member who is at risk of going through the window scandal and being deported what would be your advice to them legal advice 100 percent legal advice find someone who number one understands the situation fully because quite a lot of solicitors don't then go on to look for a barrister who understands. But it's what do you now feel? I'm no, I'm not West Indian enough because I've never been there, but I'm also now being told I'm not British. So what am I? You're already a conundrum as it is, mm. regardless of it being now formalized that your passport says to you that you're not good enough. 
you, you mentioned an interesting point. You said that even though your parents are from the Caribbean mm-hmm. and you're born here, and I believe what you said there, that's how many of us grew up thinking at one point or another. Because I remember I, I, was, I felt like that at one stage, whereby you don't feel fully West Indian because you haven't really been there. I'll be real, I went there when I was eight, but some, most of my friends that went to school, they've never been to the Caribbean. And then you don't feel quite British because you're, you're told you're a so-called ethnic minority. Do you think this um, relays back to why they, there's, according to statistics, saying that Afro-Caribbean kids are underachieving, especially boys, they're stating, the, the, the facts, the, the stats that I've read, you can correct me if I'm wrong, why a lot of Afro-Caribbean boys are underachieving in school? I think a lot of Afro-Caribbean boys are underachieving in school because they don't necessarily have a curriculum that's for them. Because unfortunately, we are now standing in the idea of Black History Month, the only time of the year that you are actually okay to be Black. (laughs) At the time which they then tell you you are a slave or you are a descendant of a slave Mm. or you are in some way, I don't know, inferior, to then be told that and then expected to achieve Really? Not going to happen. It looks like we have the same idea that there's no real community feel Yes. in the Black community. Because a lot of us, we believed that if I became as stereotypically what is considered white as possible, had a good education, went to university, got a PhD, did whatever... Um, we would necessarily then be accepted and no longer be called the black Rachel. You would just be called Rachel. Mm. But I have no problem with being called the black Rachel because I am black. Yeah. I don't see my identity as something that hinders me. I don't. And I love the way I am because being the person that I am, I can break down nearly every stereotype. I'm black, I'm Muslim, and I'm articulate. Yeah. How, how important is cultural identity for young people and for I parents as well? Oh, the reason why I think the boys nowadays have less of a chance of success is because they don't have access to the things that my generation did, be it Saturday schools be it cultural dance classes, Mm. be it some form of black history going on in the home. There's just none of that. There's a lot of, I need to catch up. So our parents are working two, three, four, five jobs. The children are taking care of themselves. Mum comes home, she's shattered. Dad comes home, he's shattered. It's about, we're still in that rat race of surviving. We haven't quite stepped up to thriving yet in a lot of our cases. And a lot of that is to do with the fact that we are still working towards a system to accept us that was never built for our acceptance. That's why I will continuously shout, we need safe spaces. We need safe spaces so that the microaggressions are something we can laugh about rather than take to heart. Now, the next question goes into, and I believe personally they're interlinked, but you you as an a more educated lady, you could hopefully shed more light. Um, special educational needs, um, as you know, autism, ADHD, diaspora, dyslexia, 
and numerous other ones. Opposition defines disorder. I was working as a young boy. I was working with the Hatta. What is your opinion of these um, so-called disabilities? Are they disabilities? It's mm. a good question. It's, are they disabilities? That's that's the question I would pose to someone else. I don't necessarily see them as disabilities. I see them as difference. Okay. But our schools are not set up to deal with difference. Because a lot of people say, okay, special educational needs, and we automatically think of those that are not achieving. I blame the system in the way it's set up. What I've noticed with the SEND, Special Educational Needs Disabilities, one, nearly every school I go into, disproportionately, many black boys are signed up to ADHD. And secondly, um, I wanted to come from my, I'm just going by what I see. Do you, as an educational specialist, do you think that some of their disability, even though it's not, I don't see it as a disability like what you said, but that these issues can be not cured, but can be tamed by a change of diet and lifestyle? Yes, I think a lot of it is also our bodies were not built for the diet that we're feeding it. Traditionally, because if you go to places like Africa, so we say West Africa, the moment they adopt a Western diet, you find a lot more of these attention deficit things coming in because you've also got the issues of E-numbers. So the E-numbers, the additives, the preservatives, those sorts of things are causing a lot of issues. The modern so would you say a lot of dis- these disabilities stem from these E-numbers? I wouldn't say they necessarily stem from the E-numbers, but look at look at the recent import of American sweets yeah, into the UK. Yeah. I found it hilarious. Like they're always talking about this craft macaroni and cheese in a box business. Yeah. And I walked into Tesco's and I really wanted to show my daughter something because my 11 year old is very much like me and she's very precocious. So I said to her, this is what it is. And she turned the packet and she looked at it and there was a label on it, like an additional label for the UK. And it says this product may cause hyperactivity in children. Whoa. And I sort of went, and that's what you want to eat. She went, no, no, oh, no, 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 no. So a lot of those American sweet shop things that we were giving our children money to go and buy whatever they wanted, they st- we stopped reading labels. Yeah. We stopped teaching our children how to cook. Yes. So we didn't have the foresight to see these problems. We may have more money in our pockets, yeah. but we are dealing with more of the problems of things like screen time, instant gratification, trying to not have your child bother you when you've only got six hours off. Mm. You haven't got a full day off work anymore. You've got six hours off because you've got to go to your second job or your third job. Yeah. In So that, I don't know, little Jessica can have a new pair of trainers. No, no, because what I want to say is because I had a discussion with someone and they, yeah. they, they, they're, they're a teaching assistant, but they've got a psychology degree. And she just, and we were working, doing, I was doing a project in this school. And she was working there as like a teaching assistant. And we noticed that there were some boys that changed because the mom started to listen to someone from YouTube. And they, they reduced the playing time they had in the computer games. They mm-hmm. took out maybe 60% of the sugar they normally take out of their diet. And the, there was the, even though the father wasn't there, but they got like a mentor. Like they got like a, there was an uncle in the family. And they got him to come in twice a week. And we did see, I'm not going to say he changed overnight, but we did see a, a big change by 60%, 60, 
of an improvement. So that made me see things can be dealt with um, in a more holistic way. Then children are holistic beings. Yeah. They're not going to react if there's not something put there to cause that action. It's like a very basic chemical equation. You put something in, it does what it has to do and it releases what it needs to. But I think a lot of the problem with this push for diagnosis really early is that you cannot unlabel that child once you've labeled them. So even if you've been labeled ADHD, but it turns out like a two years later, now nah, he hasn't really got it. They still have you labeled as ADHD. Well, it's labeled. You've been labeled. What what system do we have to unlabel them? That's, That's why when every, any parent comes to me and says they want to statement my child, I don't necessarily go, well, go with it. Like, hmm, can we look at some of these behaviors and could they be like childish behaviors? Back in the day, you could, your mom could have said, oh, uh, do you know what? I've got a late shift. I'm working late. I've got a grandma's house. I had that. Or I had, don't go home, go to Auntie Maybe's house. And I got a full meal when I got there. And Auntie Mabel would say, have you done your homework? Uh-huh. Let me see it. The community caught the problems. But now that we've become so acclimatized, this is why I say we've assimilated rather than integrated. Yeah. When we've become those sorts of people where I'm going to look after my own and my own only. Whereas before it was, we had things like partner money. Yes. If you couldn't afford it this week, you could pull your partner early and cover your bills. But yes. now you're going to the same person who doesn't want you to succeed and taking out a credit card to cover those same bills. <laughs> we had community libraries. And I don't mean community libraries in the sense that you went down to the librarian. My house was the community library. Mm. Any black book you necessarily needed, someone would have. So you went and you found out about these things. The black community never had the whole idea of I'm going to get this child clinically diagnosed. Mm. Once we lost our community aspect. We lost us because we lost the net. The older generation were not able to teach the younger generation things. Mm. There's a another guy called Naya Imra. He runs the National Association of Black Supplementary Schools. Yes, and he's got the database of all the, if not all, many of the black supplementary schools around the UK. And they are closing. How bad are they closing? Would you say real fast, real wow. fast, and real quick? So if there's a parent and their, their son or daughter's going through permanent exclusion issues and they were to come to you through mm-hmm. your consultancy and your organization, Mother's Devotion, mm-hmm. what would you advise them to do? I need to look at it holistically because you need to know whether there's two parents there. Okay. Because there are, if there are two parents there, Someone needs to pick up more work hours and someone needs to drop theirs to find out, not necessarily if the child needs to come home to be home educated, but if there is someone that's going to have that kid's back. Mm. Because going into a PRU, pupil referral unit, is a slippery slope. Do you think they're ever, they are ever productive, the, the PUs, the pupil referral unit? I haven't seen an effective pupil referral unit personally, but... But they're not, you, they're, they're sort of like stepping stones to jail, aren't they? Um, Yeah, <laughs> I would say that, yeah. Because you yeah. have people in pupil referral units who go from pupil referral unit to custody, to back to pupil referral unit, to custody, to big man's jail. Hmm. What, what could be changed within the pupil referral unit system? I don't think kids need to go to a pupil referral unit to start with. 
Okay. So, some schools, there's some schools that have done projects, they've got like an inclusion centre. A pupil referral within... unit on site. That's that's just a way of keeping money inside the system. Oh, so basically it's just a, a, the school trying to keep the money within themselves. We have one locally. It's 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 hilarious to go and watch what goes on in there because they isolate the children really early on through these early tests in year seven as to who's not going to attain and who isn't. And then they push you down the road of cams really quickly to get a referral to then say, oh, he just can't function in school. And they're an academy. So it's really hard to challenge them because it's run as a business. It's no longer about education. So once that child goes from that, they say, no, we're not going to exclude them permanently, but we're going to send them to our on-site provision, which I think is going to be slightly better suited to their needs. Yeah. So what is CAMS for those that don't know? Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services. The mental health bit sticks out because our children do not have a mental health issue per se. Mm. We have a need that's not being met. So the amount of meltdowns that my five-year-old has has nothing to do with mental health. He has meltdowns because he's frustrated and he doesn't know how to deal with his emotions yet. I never knew that you could get expelled from nursery, but apparently you can. Yes. Yeah, I was working with a boy who they wanted to exclude him. And they got me to work in this primary school with um, three young boys who were in year three. So because... Because they started to cool down the, the boys in year three, they had an on-site nursery and they were going to exclude this boy. So they asked me if I could work with him as well. And he was on the verge of being permanently excluded because he was just going to tantrums and just wreck the whole nursery. How did he get to that point? What need yeah. not being met? Because kids don't just flip out for no reason. Yeah. They and I don't. noticed there were little issues, little things like, for example, because he was of, um, I'm not saying this was the issue. There was one issue when he he just, because he's of dual heritage. Yeah. Okay. And th- someone drew a picture of him, but they drew him like a much darker shade than he was. And that one thing, he just went crazy. <laughs> and I thought, look at that. I said, yeah, there's little, little things, little, little things. It could be any little thing we just flip out. And that was a, a revelation to me because before that, I never knew that kids in nursery are getting permanently excluded. Yeah, but then there's that report that says that our boys are being, in a way, demonised from nursery. So you would agree with this, that demonisation, dehumanisation of the black male is Start from... Very early. Very, very early. And how can we counter it? The community needs to set up our own nurseries where we sing our own songs, where the children are able to express themselves through things like drumming, where there's a lot more physical activity. Mm. Because what nurseries have become is necessarily preschools. So they're still expected to sit down at a certain time and eat. They're expected to do everything that a school child would be necessarily doing. Because we had a very, a very big issue a couple of months ago with my now five-year-old at nursery, where the teacher said, so the, the nursery nurse said something to him along the lines of, and this was a Muslim nursery, along, along the lines of, Allah is going to be very upset with you if you don't listen to me. And he turned around and went, when did you become Allah? <laughs> 
Very smart answer. And she called me in and she was very, very disheartened by his comment. But I'm disheartened by yours. She went, well, he has to learn to respect authority. I was like, you sort of have to give it to get it because I've seen the way you actually have spoken to him in the past. Do you find anti-Blackness within Muslim educational organizations, schools, nurseries? I think it's it's perceived as worse. It's just as bad. But I, perceive, I think it's perceived as worse. And I think it's perceived as worse because as a Reva, you sort yeah. of had this rose-tinted glasses idea that now you are in Islam. And the final sermon of the Prophet ﷺ is, there's no black over white, there's no Arab over non-Arab. And you sort of thought, yes, this is the place where I'm going to just be me. And then you were hit with wham. Oh, we forgot you're black. Because a lot of um, black Muslims I know that went to Muslim faith schools, a lot of them have told me horror stories. <laughs> I, I couldn't even believe um, of course, you do get the few that do say, yeah, it was fine. But the majority that I have met. But why should it have to be fine? Why can't it be great? Yes. Why can't right. education be an experience that you love? Mm. We were taught, a lot of us, and I put us in quotation marks, in terms of the educational system, we're taught to read with Biff, Chip and Kipper. Oxford reading tree. Lovely characters, traditional white family. Great. You're taught to read by a book that has no one that represents you until you get to a certain stage in that book. Mm. When you get to that certain stage in the book, there's Wilf, Wilma and their mum and dad. Yeah. Which are the black family. Then you go up a stage and then there's an introduction of the Asian family. And it's sort of like, but all of my foundation where I learned sight words, there was no one who looked like me. So do you not think I was turned off from reading from then yeah so then you're showing the root cause of why many of our young people don't want to read but a lot of our young people excel at things like maths and science yeah and, I've and the that, reason yeah. for that is you have a straight answer for a notion you give me a question i give you the answer there's and no there's no you telling me my opinion is wrong but then it's also the basics of our parents said to us you need to learn your times tables. You need to learn to add. So when you go to the shop, the man can't cheat you. Very true. Very true. Um, how and why did you start up the Mother's Devotion Initiative? Because I saw way too many of our children ended up in pupil referral units. Mm-hmm. And way too many of our children came out of school not knowing what they like or what they would like to do with their future. A lot of my work is working with the parents yeah. Um, but then I also have my own children who help work with children that are of their age bracket and their gender. Okay, peer mentoring. Peer mentoring. I've noticed in recent years, you get some, most most of the time it's white mothers. Sometimes you mm-hmm. do get some white fathers as well who have a, a young boy of dual heritage. And they're more savvy with knowing that the need for um, cultural identity the need of them being aware of um, unconscious bias and learning their history and being aware of institutionalized racism. Where do you think this has come from? I think it's from the need to compensate. So you've realized now that you are white indigenous and you know that your community is not necessarily going to accept your child on the same way they would have if your partner that you had that child with was also indigenous and white. 
you know that they have a better chance with their hair, broad nose, dark skin, of being accepted by the other culture. Mm. So you do your best for your child to be able to infiltrate that culture rather than trying to change the dominant narrative to fit your child. And it seems to be that a lot of those parents that have children of dual heritage, you find that they're even more likely to push their child into culture or dance or yes, history classes. Very good. But you find that it's more likely to happen, especially with the mothers, when dad is not there. And, and what I've noticed sometimes, sometimes the father is there, but the the, the white mother but is the father, sometimes more... The father more, lacks the knowledge. Yeah, the, the mother is more, how can I say, passionate and she understands, she fully understands the needs of it more than the black father. The black father has always been black. So he's not been towing between two communities per se. So he's like, I'm firm in my blackness. I know I'm black. If I walk out in the street, I'm black. <laughs> but he hasn't quite realized the dynamic of the, I don't know whether it would be cultural insecurity of the mum or the cultural insecurity of the white father that says, I know my child is dual heritage, but I need them to know the culture that's going to accept them. Right, that has to be another podcast altogether. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going to But sister, how would someone need to get help, could get a hold of you? If they want to get hold of Mother's Devotion, they want to help you, what is this um, what is on, your advice? I'm on Instagram. Um, Mother's Devotion is my page on Instagram. I've got a tutoring service, a tutoring company actually, where I run classes for home educated children during the day. And I also do a scholarship program for students that I think need that just that bit of extra help where I subsidize that out of pocket. Okay, so it's got a scholarship program as well. Yeah. Is that in any subject or in specific subjects? I do maths and English and science from the age of seven uh, to A-level, 18. Dr. Rachel Sarah Lewis, once we Google your name, we can find your name. I'm thankful and honoured that you spared me your time. And your contribution has been very thought-provoking and very educational. Really honoured and thankful that you blessed our podcast. And hopefully we'll be doing more work together, inshallah. inshallah. I'd like to thank you and take care. All the best to the family. Enough love and salam alaikum. Alaikum salam. The Salam Project Podcast 